Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Legacies of the War on Terror. In these episodes, we will be thinking through complex questions concerning how the War on Terror became the War of Terror for many negatively racialized communities over the past 21 years. Through expert knowledge and the recording of key events, we'll be speaking with academics and activists who are pushing back against the War on Terror's carceral logics. Executively produced by Shireen Fernandez. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society Presents Legacies of the War on Terror. Executively produced and guest hosted by Shireen Fernandez. Hello, Shireen. Hi, I am so excited to introduce our next guest, who is Rahil Mohammed, the director of the charity Maslaha. Um, and I've known about Maslaha for many, many years now, um, I guess since 2012. That's 10 years ago. Mm. And they have always really inspired, you know, what I do, my scholarly work, but also my activism too. So it's really nice to be able to talk to Rahil in person today. Rahil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like looking at all the work you've been doing for years now, it's so inspiring to have such kind of like activist giants in the room I know you're probably gonna be like oh no don't call me that but equally like it really is like you do so much and have done so much and but having people like yourselves on the show is always incredibly special so yeah thank you so much for coming on I thank you for like having me on the show like I know the podcast I'm a big fan of the podcast and yeah Shireen's her work is amazing so yeah too kind <laughs> too kind yeah surreal um could you tell us a bit about a bit about the early iterations of Masala yeah um so we've been kind of running for just over 10 years. It, we started from, you know, this was a time where there was so much toxic um, stuff flying around about Muslim communities. We'd had the kind of bombings in London. Obviously, we'd had 9-11 just before then. And, but yet there had always been this kind of existing inequalities and systemic racism that affected the everyday lives of Muslim communities. That was kind of what, in my head, was kind of separate to the kind of counterterrorism stuff. Um, and, you know, weirdly looking back, it's, this is with hindsight, um, our first work was around health. And if I kind of think about like the other kind of organisations and movements and kind of revolutionaries who have sort of like, I'm not revolutionary, but I'm just talking about people who've kind of made amazing change in society. Like health is kind of like a really anchoring thing to do. Like it touches everybody's lives. It's a way of making really tangible changes in, in sort of communities. And so Maslaha kind of grew out of this um, space of like, how do we make very practical, long-lasting change in Muslim communities' lives? But, and that's kind of grown out to include other marginalised communities. Um, and we kind of work in health, but we also now work in education, criminal justice, gender rights, the arts. We work in three different levels as well. So all of our work is rooted in communities, with communities, because that's where we're from. Mm-hmm. But in order, for, you know, in sort of in my mind, in order to make last, long-lasting change, we also work at a kind of policy level and a public imagination level. Um, so all of our projects should have that going on. Um, the The name is interesting because it's kind of a, um, it was a sort of like a judicial tool in kind of Islam where if kind of answers to sort of society's problems weren't readily available in text, it kind of forced you to apply your sort of like creative and intellectual kind of muscles to find those answers. That is so cool. Mm. That is so cool. I didn't, I didn't actually know that. Yeah, it's um, 
And, and also the other element to that, and this is like a, a theme that runs through all of Maslaha's work, is the, the the idea of like widening language around Muslim communities. So I didn't know what Maslaha meant. Most people that I meet don't know what Maslaha means. But I know now there's like nurses in Tower Hamlets, there's teachers in Bradford that know that word Maslaha. So there's a, there's a sort of thing around, because the communities we work with are, are constantly decontextualised, and what we're trying to do is put that context back in. I and mean, you can only do that if you kind of widen language. That's such a great introduction. Thank you so much, Raheel. What about you, though? How did you come to want to do this work? I've done lots of things. Uh, one of the things I was doing was like being a journalist back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I remember... Um, sort of naught. are we talking 2000s? 2000s. Yeah, yeah that, must have been, that must have been an intense time Yeah. to be yeah, a journalist. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think because we've talked, we've talked, spoken a lot about kind yeah. of two thousand, well, two thousand one to, to two thousand ten, a lot on this yes. series, haven't we? Yeah. So that must have been quite an intense time for you. It was really, t- I mean, it's hard to be a journalist if you're black and brown anyway, right? Yeah. Like getting mm-hmm. into the industry, and then suddenly, yeah, there's nine eleven, there's like the bombings here in London, and I remember being, I remember being asked to go to, and it was, um, it was some government announcement, and all the mosques had been like, I think probably forced to make this government announcement. And I was at East London Mosque and there were people like from Sky, BBC, ITV, all there. And I remember coming out of the mosque and seeing these white male journalists interviewing people leaving the mosque. And I could just tell, like, it didn't matter what people were saying. Like, they were just, I want to hear what I want to hear. And then I got home and, you know, within a space of like a few hours, I was seeing that play out on our screens. Mm. And... There was just this sort of sense of like anger and like like wh- wh- who is sort of like where's the counter and what does the counter look like and I guess I wasn't seeing enough of that um, and at the same time I'd also been helping other people set up um, kind of uh, social enterprises and charities around education so I just sort of yeah, I kind of went from, <laughs> it was weird. I mean, this is not, this was never the game plan, but yeah. But it kind of came out of place of like, I think anger, vulnerability, and also like my my community is getting a kicking. Mm. And like, it's kind of, you know, I want to do something that's practical about that. I always remember, I think it was like 2011 onwards, things in the UK and London especially started to feel really tense. And I'm thinking in the context of the Trojan Horse Affair of 2013 and then Shamima Begum going missing with her friends and it it felt like domestic policy was closing in on Muslims, right? And, um, you know, that's when I guess my attention turned to prevent, right? Thinking about how the front lines of the war on terror. So we talk about on the show the legacies of the war on terror. And in Prevent's case, it was prevent coming into our everyday spaces. Um, and I was really inspired by the work that Maslaha does around Prevent and thinking through, in particular, this uh, question around abolition. So, you know, I'm often faced with the idea that, well, we don't need Prevent because the criminal justice system works just fine. So I wonder, I could see you're so <laughs> laughing at this point. I do, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about, you know, those claims, um, but also in the context of abolition specifically yeah i mean so the criminal justice system to be you know to be really this is accurate and be blunt is is systemically racist and always has been 
Um, and that's not an apparatus that we should be looking to for help. Um, and just to, and I, just to give you a small example, I guess, in terms of the work that we do. So, um, so Muslim, the Muslim prison population has like increased dramatically. Um, in two thousand and two, there were five thousand five hundred and two Muslims. Uh, last year, that number was thirteen thousand seven hundred and twenty-four. Mm-hmm. We we now make up eighteen percent of the prison population. Whereas uh, the Muslim population of England and Wales is like 5%. Yes. That's insane. Mm. Yeah. And so my thing is like, why are more people not talking about this? Yeah. Because they're not. And if I, like, even if I think just for, my, for myself as a academic sociologist, talk about and think about these things, particularly concerning prisons, quite a lot on the show. I, did, I never thought about actually, I wonder what's happening in that sense with those numbers. As we know that the government has had a sponsored attack on Muslim lives for decades now. Of course, that's going to be a product of that. Absolutely appalling. But is it related to terrorism offences? Well, I guess if we look at those numbers, right, like 2002 is 5,502. We had 9-11 the year before. And what's really interesting is the only place where religion is recorded is in prison. It's not recorded at any other place. So if you speak to like people in government, civil servants, they're like, Oh, because there are loads of people converting in prison. Well, like, there's actually no evidence that that's happening. Oh, my God. And we've actually said this directly to ministers and, like, the secretaries of state. We've been saying, this is what it comes down to. Like, if you're not, you either don't care about these communities or you don't have the skills and expertise to find out why that increase has happened. And it's probably a bit of both. But they don't want to sort of, it, it's, it works for, and this is the way prisons work. It, it's better to have this... Um, stuff hidden, whether it's by data, whether it's actually physically behind a prison wall, um, then to sort of have any kind of review or like have this out in the open because you then have to kind of address it. And, you know, if we're really honest about it, Muslims in prison, like if if there was, you know, we shouldn't think of like hierarchies, but like they're not going to be the most popular people in society. People will largely be like, okay, well, so what? But Um, even from our own communities, our own Muslim communities, where they say, well, that's never going to happen to me or my children or my family members. So... It's like a pariah in society, right? Yeah. And also, you know, we, you know, we're talking about abolition and, you know, like I'm massively indebted to and love the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And, you know, she talks about the fact that it's a trick of perspective to think of prisons on the margins of society. Mm. Um, and actually in her new book, Abolition Geography, she talks about like, actually redrawing a map where you've, you, you place prisons in the kind of centre um, and see the kind of ripple effect that prisons have like throughout society you know whether it's like on on families individuals on the policies that are made within prison which then come out and then are exercised on our on our communities yeah. and so i so i feel there's something around prisons almost being a kind of hidden incubator for laws that are designed to oppress marginalized communities and that's the place we should be looking at to see what's going to happen in the next 5 years you know outside of the prison system I often think about Guantanamo Bay prison, and that is essentially a prison for Muslims. So Qurans were desecrated, um, the detainees' Muslim beliefs were used as part of torture regimes and abuse and all sorts. And then here in the UK and reading your report, Muslims in prison, we can see how Muslim identity, like even if 
prisoners are converting to Islam. Like, who cares, right? Yeah. But the way in which it's been constructed as, well, this could be a sign of extremism or Muslim gangs or terrorism, then does have a ripple effect on the on wider society. So, for example, those labels, terrorism, extremism, Muslim gangs, has led to calls for having separate wings for just Muslims yeah. to be isolated. Yeah. So we really see how the ideology of Islam is being securitized in prisons, but also beyond the prison's borders too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think at the moment within prisons, like any sign of kind of religiosity um, will lead to punitive, lead to kind of punitive measures. So we've like had countless interviews of Muslim men and women who've spoken about um, growing a beard, getting punished for that. The, 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 one, the one thing that I think... And I've again, we've we've said this directly to people in government, and like nothing's been done about it. Has been every single Muslim man that I've spoken to has said, and you know, we've been in lots of prisons around the country as well. Has said to us that they've had the threat of Friday prayers being taken away from them if they didn't do something. And if you look at the kind of there are these mandatory prison guidelines around um, the right to worship, um, engaging in kind of festivals, like. It, it doesn't matter. Like those are being completely flouted, but like none of these stories are kind of getting out, and they're not the people that you know. That system is not being held to mm. account. Um, you know, the, so the kind of the, the sort of like the Quran's being desecrated, the prayer mats being desecrated, Muslim men having like pork pot on their plates. That's almost like kind of not to say that it's normal, um, but it's almost like the other stuff where. Like there was this one Muslim um, prison staff member who kind of spoke about he had he was working in this prison and he had lots of Muslims turn up to his workshops, which is which is great because if you if you engage in like what they call purposeful activity, um, it's supposed to you know be good for rehabilitation. We can you know rehabilitation is a whole other conversation, but also um, you're supposed to engage in like employment stuff or education. So this Muslim staff member had loads of Muslims attending his workshop. So, you know, that's supposed to be a good thing. Somebody saw that, a, a white prison staff member, and they were basically like, um, I think we should write an incident report. And he was like, but why? Because there were lots of Muslims gathering. So so they weren't even, so in that instance, they weren't even engaging in kind of religious practice. Just the very presence of like lots of Muslims is a kind of, incident um and it has to be like flagged up and it's written up and then it will lead to some other like punitive action and the thing is absolutely appalling absolutely appalling and do you know what's just going through my head um at the moment is john holmwood's words around secularism and how violent secularism actually is how not quote-unquote non-religious religiousness is so violent and presents as a way of neutralising faith, like, yeah, neutralising faith or presents as this kind of, like, hammer, basically, in all institutions everyday life. The right way is the secular way. Like, I'll never forget, I think it was the first time he came on the show, it was a couple of years ago, and saying that to me, it just stuck in my head, like, actually, this is what we need to be looking at. Yeah. But I, I do think there's a hierarchy in how religions are presented as threatening. Right? Of course. So we live predominantly in Christian time, mm -hmm. so, you know, take dates off for Christmas, our calendars are positioned in that way. There's a way in which Muslims, Islam, I would definitely say uh, that they are constructed as 
inherently violent. Second class citizens. Absolutely. We saw that with citizen deprivation and all sorts. And I think what Rahil touches on is a space, the prison, mm. that people turn a blind eye to. We don't we don't recognise it as an important space that we need to confront our activism or our prejudices. Because if we're because if we're not recognising everyday life mm. as the of of Muslims that are outside of prisons in this way, in a way that is loving and caring and recognising people's like humanity, then of course that's not going to be the case in a prison. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I know, I, I feel like these are really important things to reflect on because although we're not necessarily saying things that people, I mean, there's lots of things you've said, Raheel, already that people won't know, but like it's talking through the everydayness of this, the hostility of the legacies of war on terror. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I think, um, <laughs> I, think, I think is really, really important to flag because it's so easy for people to just turn a blind eye to this stuff the, the tools that are used around sort of like counterterrorism, so like that kind of the idea of it's the preemption thing mm. it's like so we're, we're, we're not only going to police your present day lives we're also going to police your future yes. which is what prevent is but it's also what the gang matrix is it's also what stop and search is as well it's also what's happening in in prisons so you know there's this kind of surveillance that happens at all of these different levels. And then I think, and I, I'm sort of like still thinking this through, but like there's something around, you know, this government is willing to spend like, what, four billion pounds on building new prisons. Mm. And we're going to have 20,000 new police officers. Super courts as well yeah. in Manchester. Yeah. So those prisons need to be filled up. But, the, you know, I think the reason why those prisons are being built, and I'm basing this on evidence that, I am actually quite an interesting guy, but so I'm just, I'm, there's a caveat. Before You're I a say very that. interesting guy. Right <laughs> there's no dispute in um, that. <laughs> I was listening to the, the public accounts uh, select committee hearing and there was this really senior civil servant, permanent secretary talking about the building of prisons. And he basically said, there were, there were a couple of things that he said, but one of the things he said was, we're actually quite good at building prisons. And I was like, Wow, imagine just saying like we were we're really good at like providing care for communities. These people. But the other thing people. that he said was like the only way they he, they could get money to build the new prisons from treasury was not to close the old prisons down. Mm. So there's also a thing of like like that capital investment is good for the economy, right? So there's that capitalist thing that's happening, but these the structures that then end up getting built like where the people who end up taking the um basically end up getting harmed by it and again using Ruth Wilson Gilmore's definition of racism like leading to premature death absolutely I, I love um, that definition yeah it's something we don't take seriously enough. can we say it again please Rahul for listeners you know so this is just like I'm summarizing that mm -hmm. racism is the state sanctioned um, or extra legal production of group differentiated vulnerabilities that lead to premature death come on yes, I've got Rahul. it yes. oh. so you've got it right is that yeah. oh my god you got it right <laughs> But what's, what's really amazing about Ruth Wilson Gilmore is that we use that particular definition in this new project that we're okay. working on, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thinking about prevent and this concept of premature death. Yeah. So some people may think, like, what the hell are these people talking about? But it's such a it's such a vital it's such a vital, you know, definition that we need to take seriously. This idea of premature death. So how would you maybe explain that? Or why would prevent lead to premature death? Are we reaching a little bit? No, but I, I guess it's that thing of, um, so when COVID happened, um, like one of the leading guys on health determinants in this country is a guy called Michael Marnett. And he talked about racism being 
a social determinant that can affect our health, racism being that. So if you have grown up and you're constantly battling the state, i.e. you're a child that goes to school and you know, you might have been referred to prevent. Your parents then have to come in and have a conversation. You struggle with navigating the NHS. You find you struggle then with finding uh, employment because we know that if you're Muslim, it's harder to get into the job market. All of that is a physical, emotional, psychological strain on the individual. And that shortens lives. I think that's why we have to take racism so seriously. And, you know, I think it's... You know, when again, you know, when COVID happened, like the, the faces that we saw on the fronts of newspapers were black and brown faces. Mm. You know, if we needed an example of structural racism leading to premature death, like that was it. And my concern, I guess, is, is that that gets forgotten so easily. Mm. Which is why, the, you know, the report that we're doing is so important. The, the project that we're doing is so important because mm. I think what's really amazing about it is that you get to hear... You must get to hear like that interior life of like Muslims who are affected by prevent and then it's connected to the kind of wider systemic stuff as well. And I think that's the thing I think that's the thing that audio does, but I think it's that it's that like how do we how do we sort of do justice to people's harm and trauma um in a way that isn't like you know like uh, sort of trying to make a drama out of it, but just to sort of like shine the truth on what's happening in society. I think this is probably a good time to talk about the project that we're doing. Yeah, please yeah. do tell the listeners about the project, yes. what, what the pro- how the project came about. Like, how did you guys meet though as well? Oh my gosh. Um, we <laughs> met many years ago. So I saw, was it was 2012 when you about Maslaha, I was doing this programme called Uprising and one of the directors knew what I was interested in and was like, oh, have you heard of Masaha? I was like, no, I was, what, 22? I have no idea what this this organisation is. And then I guess over the years, just following what Masaha has been doing with, the, you know, Muslim communities. Um, so I followed really closely your Muslim Girls Fencing Project, mm. which I thought was incredible. So it's not just you know, talking about trauma, but thinking about the ways in which communities can hold on to uh, hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I thank you for saying that, Shreen, because I think that's one of the things that, yeah, and I should have said this earlier, actually, but I think, you know, even, you know, we've talked about prisons, but even within the prison system, um, there is there is resistance and rebellion. Mm. And so all of our work is about recognising the expertise and knowledge that exists within communities that when mobilised, we can change this stuff. Yeah. So that's that's almost like a really big part of what Maslaha does. But it's we do that in community and we do that with solidarity with lots of different kind of partnerships as well yeah. around the country. Um, and I think, the, I think going back to our project, yeah. which is kind of about stories, the way that we do that is, you know, it was that the thing that I was talking about earlier about like widening language. Like the thing that we have that is our kind of like superpower is the way that we can tell stories mm. and our stories. Um, and that's what, you know, those who seek to oppress us don't have because there's a kind of limited imagination. And that's why they create mono narratives and kind of mono identities. We're like not doing that. Mm. So our kind of stories are both a sort of site of vulnerability, but also our strength. Yes. Um, so that's, I think that's, what the project is essentially about right it was 
um, thinking about how prevent impacts Muslim communities in particular spaces. So we looked at the school, healthcare systems, the prison, and the home too, thinking about that public and private divide and concentrating on how prevent interferes in the lives of Muslims in these spaces. So in the home, for example, there were testimonies from Muslim parents saying, well, I've just received prevent training. I need to go home now and tell my children that you can't say certain things at school. You can't wear certain things. There are always eyes on me. And I don't feel like we focus on these spaces so much because they are invisible. What happens at home is invisible. What happens in the prison is invisible too. And I'm really big on making our research accessible to the public. So we transformed our research into audio clips and illustrations to really allow the public to use our resources in whichever way that they that they seek, but also to continue a conversation on how they have been affected by prevent, but also broader legislations related to uh, the war on terror. Can you give some more examples of what the what you found in the research and what the resources entail? Yes, absolutely. So. We also partnered with Dr. Tarek Yunus, who looks at prevent in healthcare settings. And what was really interesting about his work is he actually looks at Muslim professionals. So how do Muslim professionals navigate this policy, which not only requires them to flag up individuals, you know, namely Muslims for signs of radicalization, but also implicates them too, implicates their identities, their beliefs, their practices. And his research is so interesting because you see that there is a gender imbalance in which, you know, some Muslim professionals, men, male professionals are saying, well, I can't say certain things in training because if I do, I'm going to get flagged up as a potential terrorist. If I say, well, I don't agree with what Prevent is saying, what does that look like? As a visible Muslim woman, similarly, there are certain things that they felt they could and couldn't do. And that was also echoed in the school's chapter so Muslim teachers saying, and these were two Muslim male teachers I interviewed, um, and it's really interesting going back to what Rahil was saying about Friday prayers. After the Trojan horse affair, Friday prayers were severely clamped down on in schools. And I'm talking That's about... That's horrible. Yes. That's so sad. So sad. And this, is, this isn't just... Um, this was state schools, right? So Muslim teachers saying that they weren't allowed to pray with Muslim students. And this proximity to other Muslims causes this idea of extremism and radicalization and flags up safeguarding concerns. Um, so that's what that's what the project does. And then obviously focusing on what Maslaha does with the works of uh, the work of prisoners too, which I think is so important because again, it's something that we choose to not see, I feel. Yeah, I th- I think that that example of like the prisons and home, and the schools, I, the the praying example that you just gave about you're not allowed to pray Friday prayers in a school, and you see that happening in kind of prisons. It's just that it goes back to the thing you know that Ruth Wilson Gilmer says that prisons are not on the margins of society. They, you know, they're just kind of like interfaces and borders um, with what's happening. Um, but I think there's also something around how how in how our kind of intimate lives are, are policed, and I'm and I'm and 
so the other book that I'm thinking of that I've just read recently was like Wayward Lives by Cynthia mm. Harmon. Oh, such a great book. That's beautiful such an amazing book. <laughs> such a beautiful book. I cry, like cried reading that book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great book. And it's just, it's, it's again, it's like these stories that we, you know, that I haven't heard mm. uh, early 20th century of like black women who are... Um, living in poverty. Living yeah. in poverty. Yeah. And, but just the very act of being a black woman mm. uh, in a gathering or like their intimate life has to be policed because it's a threat. Mm. So like this always happens, you know, and like that's it's happening now and it's happening with... You know, all marginalized communities, but it's like, how do we, how do we counter something like that? And I sort of feel, that I think that's why Sadia Hartman's work is so important because she count, you know, she talks about um, writing against the kind of archive. You know, there's something about in the kind of responsibility of telling those stories yeah. as well. I think that's part of the act. I think that's what we do in the project too, because if we think about the archive and what counterterrorism documents tell us about the threat of terrorism that you need to protect uh, protect x y and z that you know prison reports on muslims in prison you know this is what the state is telling us this is what is being enforced and what i feel like our project does is actually claim back these narratives and create an archive of our own and something that we put forward in the conclusion is we hope that this encourages others to speak out, right? Recognizing the trauma that is associated with this, with this, but thinking about speaking back to those official yeah. narratives, right? We've spoken about prisons, we spoke about schools, but in the research as well, could you give some other examples about what you found within everyday life? Absolutely, I can give an example of myself. Yeah, please do, Shereen. Oh gosh, so this, this was pre-prevent. So when I say pre-prevent, I mean pre-statutory prevent in 2015. So I think it was 2013, 2014. I was a primary school teacher teaching reception. So what was it four or five-year-olds? And news broke out that the Trojan horse affair was everywhere, that Muslim educators were, you know, trying to Islamify the curriculums up north. And there was news everywhere, I remember, at that time that Muslim educators could be potential Islamists and they are trying to transform our curriculums. And that was the year, 2014, that I just started wearing hijab as well. So I just started looking like a visible Muslim. And there was this one incident, it wasn't even an incident, it was this, this child coming up, she came up to me and she had put a scarf around her head and was like, look, miss, I'm you. You'd be like, oh, that's so cute. But no, how can you say that? I had to be like, take it off. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's funny now, but you think, <laughs> like, okay, this is so nice, but no, I don't have to wear this because I didn't feel like I would be protected if something was to happen. And this is how banal this stuff is. Something as simple as wearing a scarf around your head is going to be understood as something more sinister. And that comes out as well in the research that we do with Muslim teachers. I had one example, which I didn't include in the project, but there's an English teacher who was talking about Henry VIII. And it was the height of, you know, ISIS. And she said, I couldn't use the word beheading in my class. Right. Imagine, imagine going back home and saying, you know, Miss so-and-so taught us about beheading today. Like, you know, and this is in the context of Henry VIII. So you had to think of like innovative ways to talk about beheading, perhaps. 
<laughs> I mean, you did have a beard. Right. Oh my God. Well, not the right type of beard, right? But this is this is the fear that is instilled in these teachers. And I think one of the things, I think we've covered this quite a few times on the show before, but it's very Fanonian. Um, in terms of thinking about what the how the self is being perceived constantly, like as people of colour, as black people, as people that are negatively racialized. In these contexts, like it's so intensified at work, but how am I being received? What might the assumption be of me? And there's two things I want to talk about here is number one, the psychological impact of that and how draining that is. Like we're not we're not the first to sit and discuss how racism affects our mental health, affects our, our daily lives and the proximity to harm. So like how these like having to constantly think about how you're being received, the two the two things that I think are just really, really what this is making me think about when you're giving the stories from the re- research arenas, yeah, mm. the impact on us and our sense of selves, our mental health, our actual health, but then also what this process, if you get this process wrong, what if I don't actually successfully preconceive what someone thinks of me in a mm. situation? Or what if I get it wrong? What if they then call the police on me? What if they then tell their tell my superiors of me? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's that constant like looking in on looking at oneself, how one is being racialized, how one is being negatively racialized. It's just constant, and I think that what what your project is clearly going to be bringing out is the everydayness of it, but and the ordinariness of it. With like the exceptional becoming normalized, right? Yeah, the exceptional measures of the war on terror becoming part of our everyday lives. I think I th- what is really interesting of what you say, Chantel, is so the project looks at the home, mm. um, and you're you're hearing case studies of Muslim mothers saying, "Well, don't say this when you go to school, don't say that when you go to school." So they have the awareness that we are being looked at in a very different way, and there are particular spaces in which you cannot say these things, you cannot wear certain things. I've come across posts where parents are saying, I don't know if I am allowed to let my child fast or don't know if they can wear a hijab to school. So we're seeing, I don't know what you think, Rahil, are we seeing more, are Muslims becoming more aware of the gaze that's on them, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, just what you were saying as well, and you, Chantal, just, I think there is a real, I mean, I've heard from mums saying, um, and mums who've actually got loads of social capital, right, saying, there's certain conversations they don't have at home because they're worried their child might say that in school. Yes. Um, you know, I know, you know, we're talking about stories, but I know of one mum who was like, she was like a really active member of this school community and her child got referred to prevent, he was like nine years old in primary school and he got referred because another boy had like dared him to draw a gun in his notebook, so he did and it, that led to a referral to prevent. And then that mum carries round the trauma that, that she said she was just so... She didn't tell anyone for months. Was it embarrassing? I think she also felt like that thing of being watched, or right, like, right. you know, of like being judged in some way, right? Because you have been judged. Mm. And I, I think about, you know, those are like individual stories. But, you know, I remember reading... And again, this goes back to like, how do we... Like, how do we tell these stories that sometimes get hidden in like formal data so th- there was this there was a, ho- a home office um reports so between 2015 and 2016 something like nearly 5,000 muslims got referred to prevent 
1,500 of those were under the age of 15. So it's like you said, right, it falls under safeguarding. So safeguarding is you're protecting your child from physical, emotional harm. So 1,500 Muslim parents, carers, would have got a phone call to say, we think your child is being harmed and we think you're complicit. Now, of that 1,500, only a tiny get taken further forward. And that might mean you're given parenting classes, not that there's an extremism issue. Mm. You're, you're being judged for counterterrorism. Actually, sorry, we got it wrong. Now, imagine if that had been 1,500 middle-class white families. Mm. You know, and that, so that's the, almost the kind of, you know, the impact that we're not... So the counter, for me, has to be about, like, your, you know, which is what project is about, is about transparency, transparency, feeling that you can, like, challenge this stuff in the kind of public space. Um, because it it wins by kind of being hidden, you know, and it is in prisons, but, yeah. you know, it's happening now as well, yeah, in schools and in homes and in, like, the healthcare system. I was quite shocked by how many actually didn't know about Prevent. Yeah. So when I was interviewing Muslim parents in particular, they were like, well, I don't know what this is. And when I pushed them further on it, it was, I remember one in particular mother saying, well, it's never going to happen to my child. So you, you're... And I get your point, Rahil, completely about data obscuring the stories. Because even if it's one child referred, that one child has a uh, a story yeah. that we need to know. Yeah. yeah which yeah, is yeah. so important. And then you mentioned the point about, you know, the white middle class. And we can see Prevent rebranding itself to tackling the far right. Yeah. But that doesn't change its racist logics. A bad policy is a bad policy. Racism yes. is racism, like whoever it's kind of directed at. And all, all it will do is, like with Stop and Search with Gang Matrix, it ends up, if it's there, it will just evolve mm. and kind of become this capacious thing. That's something, That's I think that's been my big lesson from this whole series. A bad policy is a bad policy. Because yes. I can be a bit draconian with some of these white people, you know, then like, <laughs> listen, as it, as it, do you know what I mean? Is it? But that's not the answer. Like, as in thinking about sort of, young a lot more young white white boys in particular and girls getting radicalized but like that doesn't mean that they should be experienced experiencing prevent um that's i think that's been one of the most important things about this series like is about saying it's a bad policy do not apply it to people even if they have been indoctrinated to think that we as marginalized people deserve to be harmed but also white supremacy the far right has been here for ages and i was yes, thinking the yes. other day with news about the new italian prime minister is every italian in the uk going to be referred on to prevent now yeah what does this mean I, actual far right government yes so what does that mean in the context of prevent and engaging our nation state the uk engaging with it to italy but they're european so it doesn't matter babe and we're brexited yeah <laughs> But what does that mean? These are huge questions. And it's, you know, I don't know if I have the answer, but it, it does make me think about the direction in which we are traveling in. And, uh, you know, with the Shawcross Review, so the Shawcross Review is the, pre the Prevent Review. That's going to come out apparently soon. Oh, is it going to come out in October? I don't know. It's been, like, pushed back so much. It was supposed oh, to come out, like, 10 years ago. Right. Oh, it's going to be great Obviously, to have yeah. our, like, like counter, 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 like, check out the, but this But he's going to make the case for, actually, we need more pressure on, you know, Islamist extremism. Really? So he's going to make the case for more prevent? 
Um, was, is it more prevent on Muslims, but yeah. also not viewing those who have been referred on to prevent as the victims, but as the terror suspects? Yeah. Oh, that's scary. So th- what? But that means. But that means. So it's guilty until proven innocent. Well, that's vibes. Well, well, prevent isn't about guilt, right? No. Prevent is it's about suspicion. It's about suspicion and judgments right. made in that split second mm. of it's a possible can't, it's future. It can't be legal. Oh, no, well, actually, we know that harmful things can be legal. Yes, absolutely. But this is what's so terrifying is that now you are being told who can be a victim and who cannot be a victim. Yeah. How dare you have any sympathy for those who have been referred on to prevent. And what does that do to people's voices? I mean, it's also like the you know the police and crime bill that's going... It's, mm. it's like any sort of protest, if it's not coming from the right type of person mm. or if it's not palatable enough, has to get shut down. There's a thing that was released around terrorism in prisons, which, you know, it was written by, like... Well, he's, he was the Queen's Council. I guess he's the King's Council now, whatever. Yes. But it's just full of, like, Orientalist rubbish and is doing exactly what the Shawcross Review is saying. It's basically saying to go- to prison governors, don't be afraid of like checking terrorism. Like we're too sort of like soft on people who are kind of um we're too worried about like um offending religious beliefs. Like if it's terrorism we should like shut down on it. We should think about having more kind of surveillance within prisons as well. There's more protection for Caught, you know, being racist than it is to pull back on some certain claims, I think. Yeah. That is insane. What's so important, and I really hope that our listeners take this on, is the importance of engaging with activist spaces, but community organisations too. Mm. So when we're researching, when we're writing, doesn't matter if it's not reaching the right people, which is what Maslaha does so well. I, you know, Rahil, I've learned so much from you in this, what, 45 mm. minutes. You know, we've worked together. I've known you for for, for a while now, but um, learned so much from you. Just, just thinking about how we can work together. Because I think acad- academia can be quite extractivist, yes, I guess. Yes, definitely. I yeah, is. extractivist, but also elitist. But... There are lots of Scott activists like yourself, Shireen, that do that work of bridging the academy with the community. But that we exists. Need to keep doing that. And there's there's people doing it, and we just yes. need to keep shining a light on those things that are happening. There absolutely. are. It feels absolutely hopeless on Plague Island right now, but there are a lot of hopeful things. Are happening. you hopeful, Rahil? Yeah, I'm absolutely like I'm. I'm hopeful because I think it's what you're saying. So, you know, I think, you know, me and Shireen had this conversation about this project. I can't remember when, but it was like, yeah, let's just do it. Mm. Again, you know, we spoke about Sadia Hartman, mm. right? Like, I think it's one of these things that I learned from her, which is whenever people are being oppressed, people will rebel and resist. It's just whether or not, you know, it gets recorded down in history or not. And that's happening right now. You know, like we have like partners and coalitions, whether it's prevent, whether it's around policing, whether it's around prisons, whether it's like the harms that safeguarding does. You know, we're working with a bunch of great Muslim artists and creating this satirical podcast called the future is muslim please do have us on show let's talk about that yeah. <laughs> definitely um, of course definitely. but there's loads of people who are kind of like mobilizing because you know i always think like we've got so much like our, like our creativity is it is our strength and it's what the other side not the other side like there isn't another side there are like loads of sides right there's loads of like 
spaces where we have to kind of intervene. But there's such a lack of imagination and creativity that, you know, so what's the, the our counter has to be the opposite. What a nice note to end on. That is such a nice note. And and you know what? It's always like some of the most critical scholars like Raheel that come on that are always the most hopeful. Yes. And that should tell you, that should tell you a lot. I want to end with like, just talking mm. about home, like I have to kind of end on like, you know, the quote from Mariam Carver, which is hope is a discipline. Yes. <sighs> That's so nice. Hope is a discipline. Thank you, Mariam. She's a legend, Listeners, you've got one more episode of Legacies of the War on Terror next week. Thank you so much, Raheel. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Bye. Thank you for listening to Legacies of the War on Terror. Guest executively produced by Shireen Fernandez. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.